Good evening. Welcome to tonight's Bible study. I hope uh, hope everyone's doing well and you're healthy and and as well as can be expected. It feels like we're in day 455 of this stay-at-home order, but I think in reality it's much shorter. And uh, just again, want to reassure you that uh, we'll get through it. God's watching over us. God's protecting us. And uh, I'm praying for all of you uh, that the Lord would keep His hand of protection on you. And uh, just keep your eyes on Him and, and uh, keep your faith in Him. I want to change gears a little bit tonight. Um, for the past oh, month or two, I think we've been looking at the, uh, the subject of Calvinism and doing a study on uh, what the tulip doctrine is. And tonight I want to, I want to change gears and, and uh, do something new. And for the next few weeks, or however long it takes, I want to take a dive into one specific book of the Bible. Um, it's a book that's world famous a book that's very mysterious. Um, in it, you'll find some of the most frightening verses ever written in the Bible, as well as what I think are two of the chapters that are the greatest to ever grace human ears. And that is the book of the Revelation, the book of Revelation. You probably heard about it. You probably wondered what it's about. Maybe even you tried reading it and you found some pretty confusing things in there and and some pretty crazy language, and uh, maybe you gave up on it. It's a book about the end of all things, and it's a book about the beginning of forever. So you have a, a contrast there. It's a book about uh, things that will happen at the end of days, but also it tells us, it gives us a glimpse into what eternity is going to be like. And it is a book of prophecy. Most of it has not happened yet. There's a, a few chapters in the beginning that has happened, but most of what it talks about is still yet to come. And so you can imagine for the past 2,000 years since it's been written, people have looked at it and, and looked at society and tried to, to see is this happening or is that happening. And uh, Because through it we get a view of what is to come. What is to come. It tells us what will happen. And I think today, that especially in the situation that we find ourselves in, it's on a lot of people's minds. I said it was world famous, and I say that for a couple reasons. You'll probably run into a lot of people, whether or not they have a Christian background, that will be familiar with some of the concepts here. Concepts like Mark of the Beast, concepts like uh, the Antichrist, though John doesn't actually use that in, in the Revelation. He uses it in his his letters, First and Second John, uh, but we've come to give uh, the the one who is talked about in Revelation that name, and you'll find that there's a lot of people familiar with those kind of concepts, and and uh, especially nowadays, if you just flip through social media, you're going to hear and see this in some people's posts. Is so and so the Antichrist? Is the vaccine that's being talked about the mark of the beast? <laughs> Is all that's going on and all of this pestilence and all of the earthquakes, is all that a sign of the end? And what's going to happen next? You'll, you'll see that and you'll hear that even from people that don't even go to church. So I think it's a good time. Maybe we spend some time together and take a look at it and let's see what it says. So we're, we're going to do that 
and uh, start off on that journey. Now, as we do, I want you to keep a few things in mind. First of all, this is prophecy. I'm not a prophet. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. There's some things in here that tells us about the future. I can't tell the future. So if you're expecting me to say the Antichrist or the this beast it talks about is going to be so-and-so or the mark of the beast is going to be this, I can't, can't do that. I don't know. I'm just reading what the Bible says. And sometimes prophecy can be tricky too. Let me give you an example. One of the first prophecies in the Bible is, is given to us actually in the very first book in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where as God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent, He, say, he, tells, the, he tells the serpent, Satan, that the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. He's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush the head of Satan. And that's talking about Christ. Well, if you really think about it, of course, the death blow to Satan was dealt at the cross. The power of sin was broken at the cross, but Satan is still around, isn't he? And he still has demons and he still has an influence on the world. So yes, the death blow was dealt at the cross to Satan, but there's also coming a time when Jesus will put him down forever and he will be done and he will spend an eternity in the hell that was created for him. So you see, it can have dual meanings. Yes, the victory came at the cross and the resurrection for sure, but the full and final victory is coming and we'll actually read about it in this book of Revelation. So sometimes it can be tricky. I'm not going to stand here and say, hey, I know all about it and I've got this down to a T. No, I'm just going to try to tell you the best I can what the Bible says here. And you got to understand, John is writing this as he sees it too. In a time period where some things wouldn't be familiar to him. He writes this nearly 2,000 years ago. And as, he, as it is revealed to him, he writes it. And, and Revelation has a very unique style. It will give you a big picture and then it will zoom in. It, it constantly zooms in and out. Big picture, small picture. And you have to kind of get the feel of that. It's not a chronological book like you could read Genesis and go from chapter 1 to chapter 50 and you'll get the whole story in order. Revelation is not like that. No, it, it, it gives you a big picture and then it will tell you about here and tell you about there. So you've got to keep some of those things in mind. And what I want to do with this study is just give you a simple view of it. At least as, as simple as I can at least. Sometimes you get into studies like that and you can get down into every little detail and who this could be and what this could possibly mean. I really want to just kind of give a basic framework of what God tells us is going to happen. I don't want to try to guess. I don't want to try to estimate or suggest. I just want to tell you what the Bible says and let you be discerning in your own mind as you watch what's going on in the world. So, so let's do that. We're going to take some first steps tonight. So first of all, you'll need your Bible. Get a Bible if you don't have it. And you may want to have a notepad or a notebook uh, just to simply jot some things down as we go. So open your Bibles, if you would, to the Revelation chapter 1. The last book of the Bible, really easy to find. It's not Revelations. It's Revelation. There's one given to us, one that we need to know. And what I want to do tonight, I want to lay some groundwork before we actually get into some of the events that are going to happen. Because there's really some important things that are said in the first few chapters. And it'll give us a good foundation for 
for where we're going to go in the study. So I'll be kind of zooming into some verses, and then we'll be just kind of reading and getting the feel of it. Uh, tonight, there's some sections I'm going to skip, and I'll tell you why. And uh, like I said, we're just going just gonna to lay a foundation. So I want you to notice, if you would, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Very important statement here. Revelation 1 and 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to stop right there, and I want you to understand. I want you to know. I want you to be assured of who this is all about. There are some very important characters we'll focus on, people like the Antichrist or people like the dragon, which is Satan. That's In the end, that's not what it's about. The end time is not about the Antichrist. The hope of the end time is not the Antichrist. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is who it's about. That is what this is all about. It's about Christ. Our focus, our goal is not looking for the man of sin or the evil one, as the Bible calls him. Our focus and our goal is looking for the appearing of Jesus Christ. You could read the book of Daniel, and that prophecy in there is very much about the one we call Antichrist. This is the revelation, literally the uncovering, to take the cover off. The revealing of the coming of Christ. It's going to tell us how He's going to end all things, how He's going to rule over all things, how he will finally fulfill all things. Again, there's some, some scary stuff in here, but that's not the focus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Maybe you want to write that down and, and go read that later. It says this, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope, isn't it? We are looking for the appearing of our hope God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So he gets right off the bat telling us what this is about. Let's keep reading. See who it's written to. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, to show unto his servants things which, which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. If you go now down to verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now again, that's made pretty clear for us. This is the revelation of Christ which He sent to His servants. And as John writes it, he says, to the seven churches of Asia. This is a revelation of Christ written to His people. And it contains the fulfillment of so many promises that He has given His church. You can read all of the letters of the New Testament. You could read what Jesus says in the Gospels. He talks time and time again, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And, and Paul and the others, as they write in the letters of the New Testament, they tell us of the hope that is coming and, and looking to be found faithful. Revelation tells us how that will all come to pass and what that all means. So it's written to his servants. There's a blessing with this book, too. Verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. There's a special blessing. It's stated here in the first chapter, and it's stated in the last chapter, chapter 22. Blessed is he that reads and hears and keeps in his heart. 
So this is written for our instruction that we might take strength and that we might have that hope within us. That last phrase, for the time is at hand, <laughs> that was written again some 2,000 years ago. If it was true then, you better believe it's true now. The time is at hand. Every day that goes by brings us nearer and closer to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you stand and think about that, how many generations of Christians before have um, kept their eyes to the sky looking for Christ? And it, out of all the things that we are facing, and some of these things that cause us doubt and cause us fear with what's going on in the world, even some things that we'll read here that make us unsure, what you need to realize and keep in your heart that we might be, out of all the generations of all of humanity, the ones who actually get to see this book fulfilled before our eyes. We'll get to see the Bible come to pass. We'll get to see Christ return. That's a blessing. And so he says, Blessed is he that reads, for the time is at hand. Let's read what he says uh, in verse 4 and following. John to the seven churches which are at Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before the throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. That's a beautiful passage of Scripture. John, lifting up Christ, who is our Savior. He has washed us from our sins. Not only that, He has called us to a position uh, to, to be in covenant with Him. And notice what He says in verse 7. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. That's our hope, isn't it? We are looking for that blessed hope. That's amazing news. But it's not amazing to everyone. Look at the end of verse 7. And the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. For some, what this book is going to tell us and what will take place is not good news. It's not good news for those who reject Christ or for those who have walked away or those who don't give him a second thought. What's going to happen when he comes? And they have to answer for that. Because He's coming again, not as a lamb, not as the Savior. He's coming as a lion. And He will return as king of the earth. And He will do what any other king would do to those who are in rebellion. He's going to crush the rebellion and He's going to punish those who are rebellious to Him. So my advice is that you heed the words of the message of the Gospels, which John tells us in verse 5. He loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And we ought to bow to Him now and give your heart and life to Him in saving faith now. Make Him our Lord and King now before, of all, before all of creation is made to bow before Him. So it's written to His servants. It's written by John the Apostle, the same John the Beloved. And He's shown a vision of 
what is to come. Let's read quickly verse 9 uh, down through, well, down through the end. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos. He was exiled there uh, to this island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. I, uh, for these next couple verses as we read, I want you to try to put yourself there. John is alone on this island. He's been put there because he's standing for the, the word of God and for the testimony of Christ. And so he's placed on this island basically to die. He says he... He's there and it's on the Lord's day and he hears a voice. It's not just a normal voice, like a great trumpet. Don't think uh, a trumpet like uh, like a jazz band or whatever. No, think about one of those big horn trumpets, ones that have this huge loud blast. This voice that speaks is powerful. What does it say? Verse 11 saying, I am Alpha and Omega the first and the last. There's no doubt in my mind, as soon as those words are said, the first two, he knows who it is. I am. Alpha and Omega, first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is a vision like no other. Can you imagine? This This is Christ. And of all the people who have ever lived, if anyone knew Christ, in a great way, it was John. This is John the Beloved. The one who was so close to Christ and was so near and dear, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, it's John who recognizes him after the resurrection in a couple different accounts. The one I'm thinking of is when he's on the seashore and Jesus is cooking fish and they're out in the boat and John is the one who is able to say, it's the Lord. He could recognize him. Well, he recognizes him here. But this wasn't the same as he had seen him before. Before he had seen him when he was in his human body, and then he had seen his resurrected body. What John sees here is Christ glorified. Glorified. This is what the hairs being white and white as snow. It's this glory that Christ is, the glory which he finally has gone back to as he prays for in John 17. He prays for the Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before. This is the glorified Christ. And as soon as John sees it, he falls on his feet like he's dead. I probably, <laughs> I probably would too. To be able to see that, man, what, what an awesome sight. But I want you to see what happens next. And he laid his right hand on me. 
This is Christ. He laid His right hand on me, saying unto me, Fear not. Fear not. That's the love of Christ. He sees His glory, and He comes down to this human, and He lays His hand, and He says, Don't be afraid. It's me. To me, that's amazing. That's, that's Christ in, a, in, in, in just a few statements. God the Son who has come to us to give us comfort. Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. To me, that is one of the greatest statements of Christ. I am him who was alive and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of hell and death. He just preached on that for Easter. And he tells John to write the things which he's going to see. He tells him about the vision he saw, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels. We could say the pastors of the seven churches. Believe me, beloved, that gives me great strength to know whose hand I am in. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. I just want to kind of give you that taste of the amazing visions that this book is going to give us. The amazing things that John sees and he tries to to put into words. He gets to see the glorified Christ and Christ tells him, I want you to write down everything that you're going to see and I want you to send it to the churches because it tells them what they need to know. So going on in chapter 2 and chapter 3, It actually contains seven letters written to those seven churches from Jesus Himself. And it's really a a wonderful study because each letter talks a little bit about the description of Christ. And it just kind of goes hand in hand with this wonderful vision that John has received. and and, And it shows how closely we are connected to Christ. And there's some wonderful instruction and wonderful promises And my goal is perhaps after we're done with this to circle back and we'll spend some time there. But for now, I want to move past that. So Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, if you're taking notes, you could write the letters to the churches. And I would, uh, it's well worth your time to read it and see the instruction there. Revelation chapter 4 is a vision of heaven. We only really get two visions of heaven in the scripture. Revelation chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 6. Those are the two times when the the curtain, if you will, will, is peeled back and a human gets to see what a human should not. Actually, I think Paul saw it too, but Paul puts it this way. I saw things I can't even talk about. It's not even lawful for me to try to put in words. But if you read Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4, you're going to see that there's a lot of similarities between it. And I would encourage you to read those when you have time. Revelation chapter 4 is a vision of heaven. What I want to start with tonight is Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. So if you're not there, would you turn there in your Bibles? Revelation chapter 5. Because I believe with what happens here, um, that's, this is the starting point. The thing that clicks off the timer for the final days. And there's some things we we need to understand in here. So for the rest of our time tonight, I just want to kind of lay some groundwork um, 
for what's said here. So Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Well, him who sits on the throne is God the Father. God the Father is on his throne. And in his hand is what's called here a book. Well, the Greek word for that is uh, a scroll. It could be a small book. It could be a gathering of parchments. Or it could be a scroll. And I think what fits best here is a scroll. Some of you are familiar with what a scroll is. It's not the button on your mouse that you use to move up and down a page real quick with. No, it's a piece of paper. It's how they would write. It's how they would send correspondence. It's, it, it was the books of the olden days before they were actually cut up and bound together. And there's some very important descriptions given to us. It says it's sealed. So when something really important was written on a scroll, it would be rolled up and it would be sealed, especially if it was important or if it was a private message or if it was uh, like official business, it was sealed. Again, some of you might be familiar with this. Um, it could be done with melted wax. It would meet, uh, melt some wax on it to, to close the, the ends. And most often it was sealed either with a, a family crest or a signet ring or something like that. Um, or it could be made of soft clay or some other material. The basic idea was to seal it so it could only be opened by the recipient. And in fact, if it was delivered with a broken seal, you knew it had been tampered with. So this is not something that's out of the norm for those who would be reading it. And I think we understand it's, it's a scroll rolled up, but it's sealed with seven seals. Seven seals. Doesn't that seem like overkill? Like you really don't want somebody to get into this? Well, I think it speaks to a couple things. Why is this scroll sealed seven times? Well, first of all, seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. It is the number for perfection. So that tells me what is contained in this scroll is the perfect will of God. It is the right thing. It's not plan B or plan C. It is God's perfect will. And it has been sealed and it will be done. But we can also learn some things from the customs of the times, okay? Really important documents were sealed multiple times. Things like wills, like your last will and testament, or uh, title deeds, like your deed to a property. Jeremiah actually, we have a couple records. Jeremiah chapter 32, I believe it is. Jeremiah buys a piece of property. Um, and he says, write the deed, seal it up. So we can tell already from biblical examples that this was something that was done. Really important documents were sealed multiple times. So the idea was you'd roll it up a little, seal it. Roll it up a little, seal it until it was done. So you had to break a seal, read the instructions or do whatever was, was required. Then you'd break the next seal and uh, until it was finally open and done. That's the picture, that's the idea that we get here. And you had to have the authority to open it. If you didn't, well, and it was delivered with a broken seal, well, then you had to stand for that. So, that's a little bit of background. This vision that John gets is God Himself, God the Father, has a scroll in His hand that is sealed seven times. 
So that means it needs to be opened. So they look for somebody to open it. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. No one can open it. No one can read what's written in it. Verse 4, John says this, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. John gets the importance of what this is. We want to see what's inside. We want to know what it is, but no man can do that. Verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. No man has prevailed. Christ has prevailed. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one who has the victory. And I beheld, verse 6, And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, talks about his power, and seven eyes, his wisdom. He is perfect in power. He is perfect in wisdom which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. That's a discussion we'll get to later. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. This is Christ. Christ is the one who is worthy to open this. You remember the description we got of him in chapter 1? Shining bright and and glorious and, and just as bright as the sun? How does it describe him here? John looks and he beholds a lamb as it had been slain. Oh, the cross stretches from eternity to eternity. You know, in other places, the Bible calls him the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Beloved, I believe when I see him in heaven, I'll be able to do as Thomas wanted to do. I'll be able to reach my fingers into the marks of the nails in his hand and the marks of the spear in his side, because he stands as the lamb that has been slain. Forever a monument to his victory over sin, his victory over death. And this is how John sees him. He has prevailed. He is worthy to open the book. And he takes the book. Verse 8, when he had taken the book, oh man, look at the praise that comes out. The four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And beheld, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Can you imagine what this would sound like? Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the sea and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne 
and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. There is great praise for what is about to happen, because the Lamb, Jesus, takes the book and is able to open it. He begins to, to do so, because they know what it means. These four beasts it talks about are the same as the angels that Isaiah chapter 6 talks about. They're called seraphim, the ones who are in the very presence of God and they proclaim day after day for eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The four and twenty elders will we'll describe those in a lesson here coming up shortly. But all of the inhabitants of heaven, all of heaven's uh, people, break out in great praise because of this. So what in the world is in this scroll that makes it so important? Why are they so happy about Christ breaking some seals and unrolling some paper, if you, if you will? Well, listen, here, let me, let me just give you this and we'll be done. I don't believe this is a new scroll. I don't believe this is something God just came up with. Of course, I think He's known what is inside from eternity past. But it is my belief, this scroll that God holds in His hand and that Jesus is about to unfold was written thousands of years ago. And let me explain that to you. Would you take a trip with me? You can, well, you know, I, whatever. We're not going to come back here. So turn, if you would, to the book of Daniel. If you go in your Old Testament, you'll see the book of Isaiah. It's a pretty big book you'll run into. If you keep going to the right, you'll find Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Daniel is the book right after Ezekiel. Daniel's a wonderful book. Awesome stories, awesome accounts. you got the the... The fiery furnace, you got Daniel in the lion's den, you got King Nebuchadnezzar, all of that going on, the, the writing on the wall. Amazing book. But in the, the, the last half of it, actually, Daniel's actually given a vision of the future. And we're going to be visiting the book of Daniel uh, quite a few times as we go through the book of Revelation because. Um, the two go hand in hand. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And you'll see why I'm making such a big deal about this scroll. Why it matters. And why do we have to understand that before we go on to anything else. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. This is right in the middle of, of uh, prophecy that has been given, being given to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. This is an angel speaking. Actually, it's Gabriel, the angel speaking to Daniel. And he tells him this. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Sixty-nine weeks in modern English. 
And the street shall be built again, and the wall even into troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week shall he cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination shall he make it desolate, even the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. The desolate. You're probably saying, whoa, it's a lot of big words. That's a lot of math. I didn't know I had to do math. What's going on with this? Let's just make it simple. We'll come back here. We'll explain some about it. But there's something that is told to Daniel. The angel tells him in verse 24, 70 weeks are given for your people. Literally, 70 sevens. We understand this to be 70 seven-year periods. A period of 490 years. 69 of those weeks, 483 years of this, have already passed. They've already taken place. They're history. When you have time, you can do the math. They're Daniel's in captivity, Israel's in captivity, they get released, and they're told to rebuild the city. That's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and some of those others are about. From that time till the time of Christ is a period of 483 years. Then Messiah, it says, what does it say in verse uh, 26? Messiah shall be cut off. He's killed, but not for himself. No, He's killed for the sins of the whole world. That time period has already passed. At the time of Christ, on this timer, the pause button is hit. There's some reasons for that. and it has a lot to do with Israel and their rejection of Him. We'll explain that in a future lesson. But for the last 2,000 years since Christ... We've lived in what is called the age of grace, the church age. And there are left on that timer, if you will, seven more years, seven more years. And in those seven years, some things will happen. It talks here about the prince that shall come, who's going to destroy some things and who's going to be an an abomination that causes desolation. You probably... If you've studied prophecy at all, that sounds familiar. Some things Jesus said gets it right out of the book of Daniel. So, this was a prophecy that was given to Daniel. Turn to chapter 12. There's many other things that go along with this. We're not going to talk about tonight. I just want you to see there were some things told to Daniel. And in chapter 12 and verse 4, look at what he's told. You, Daniel... Shut up the words, seal the book. Hebrew word for scroll. Close up the words, seal up the scroll, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Look at verse 8. Daniel speaking, saying, I heard, but I didn't understand. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. All of these things that Daniel is told, having to do with this this period of time, he's told to seal up the scroll until the end. 
And my friends, I believe this scroll that we read about in Revelation chapter 5 is that one that was sealed up. And I believe it's a, the one that is talked about in Daniel. And what that scroll contains is the events of the last seven years. The events of the time of the end. It tells us what's going to happen. It tells us how Jesus will conquer, how He will come to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. It tells us how He is fully and finally going to put an end to Satan. And with each seal that is broken, and as the scroll is unrolled, things will come to pass. If you would, you can turn back to Revelation and look just at the first verse of chapter 6. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... I heard, as it were, the noise of the thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Chapter 6 is going to be all about seals being broken and opened. And now you see you're going to understand what's happening. One seal is broken, the scroll unrolled, the events are going to take place. Things that have already been told, things that have already been promised, here we're going to be told how it's going to happen. And understand who sets it in motion. Jesus does. Not any man. No man is found worthy to open the scroll, remember? No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. No angel can do it, not Satan. And there's been a lot of people that have tried to set things in motion. There's been a, people, a, lot, a lot of people over the years that have set dates. I think one of them was 1944 or something. The Jehovah Witnesses did, right? In fact, I think they said Jesus returned and he's sitting in a temple somewhere. If, I, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. People have set dates and forecasted, and I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. It's up to nobody else but Christ. And there is coming a time in the maybe very, very near future when God's going to say, hey, here it is. Let's do this. And you know what? Christ is going to start things in motion. It's going to break a seal. Stuff's going to happen. And it's going to go right according to plan as it has been said in the Bible. Not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. And for, uh, foreknown from eternity past. Christ will set things in, a mo in motion one seal at a time. And things will take place just as He said. The wonderful thing is, He's already told us what's going to happen. And it's right here in this book of Revelation. Each sequence will happen until the scroll is open and it's all done and we can look back and say, wow, you are worthy. You are worthy. I hope that makes that clear. I hope that makes things clear. It gives you a little bit of understanding for what, what is going to happen, especially as Revelation chapter 6 is going to tell us the contents of the scroll and what's going to happen. And quite frankly, the rest of Revelation is going to come back and explain in different areas what happens as this plan of God, this prophecy of God is unfolded. So what we're going to do next week is look at the first and maybe the second seal. We're going to have to spend a little bit of time there. What I want you to do, if you could, you've got the time right now unless everything lifts tomorrow and we all go back to work. Would you read Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 4? And just read them and maybe put down some notes 
I know we won't be able to have an exchange face-to-face as if we would in a classroom, but maybe put some, some things down that you notice, some descriptors. I know it's four verses, and it might seem rather boring to look at them again, but that, let me just let me, let me close with an illustration that I heard that has helped me um, um, in my looking at Scripture especially with things like this. Sometimes we can read over things. Um, I was told, or I heard of the story of a, a science student who had a professor, um, taught him a great many things, but he had a, a, a different way of doing it. And the first day he was in class for that semester, they were going to study a certain fish. And so he got it. They got their specimen out, put it on the table, and he got his scalpel out, and he was all ready to, ready to go, and they cut it open to see what made this fish work. And the professor said, hold on, not so fast. He said, well, what do you want me to do, professor? He said, look at the fish. Look at the fish. Yes, look at it, write down, and see what you see. So he did, and he was done rather in 30 seconds. And for the rest of the class, he sat doodling. And so he came back the next day, and, okay, professor, what are we going to do? He says, look at the fish. What do you mean, look at the fish? Look at the fish and write down what you see. And that continued on for actually the space of a couple weeks. And the first couple days, it was frustrating for him. But he began to find, as he would look, he would begin to notice different things. The curve of the scales, the coloring of the scales, the uniqueness of the eye or the uniqueness of the fins. And pretty soon, instead of just a couple sentences, he had pages and pages of what he saw. And it was only until then, after he had completely analyzed and appreciated the the outside of the fish that they began to move on. Listen, so sometimes scriptures like that. You look at it, you look at it and say, well, yeah, I've already seen that I everything that I can see. Look at it again. Read it and think about it. And that is going to be very helpful in the book of Revelation. So look at the book. Look at the verses, especially verse 1 through verse 4 of chapter 6. And that's where we'll pick up next week and we'll begin to, to discuss the seals.